pick up where I left off last week. We were looking at the importance of seeing things with an eternal perspective, and it makes a drastic difference in how we live this life if our orientation is toward the eternal. And so I want to take that into an area of discipline or self-control in that um, when we often look at those topics, generally we think in a temporal term. If I tell you, or I say to you, who is a disciplined person? Well, you say, this person eats right, they exercise, and if you're a student, they study when they're supposed to study. And yet all of that is just temporal, right? It doesn't have any truly uh, eternal effect other than if you're doing this as unto the Lord. And yet what I want to do is, is look at something that... Um, I'll call them narrow gate decisions, um, and to get there, I'm, I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 7, but I just want to note that in, um, I'm <laughs> in Matthew's account, the 12th verse talks about uh, treating others as you would want them to treat you, and then it goes into this narrow gate, and I never really tied those two together except that there are conscious choices. And I think in Luke's account, you're going to see that it's even more so. So that said, it says, Enter the narrow gate, because the gate that is wide and spacious leads to destruction. And though there are many who enter through it, how narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. So in this particular passage, when I've considered this in times past, I've always looked at it and said, Jesus isn't bothered by the numbers issue. You know, often we get caught up in things and people will say, well, if Christianity's right, how come there aren't, it isn't overwhelming or isn't it the vast majority? And Jesus never, it just didn't bother him, that whole issue. He said, only a few find it. And you're kind of going, well, I guess if Jesus says it, that I'll have to live with that. I don't know what else to do. So that said... I want to tie together two of the illustrations that Jesus had. This enter through the narrow gate, and then he did make a comment at one point. He said, when you, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And, you know, we immediately think of a sewing needle and going, oh, that's all hyperbole. It's just, you know, that's impossible. But there are, are... historical things that point to the possibility of a camel gate being called the eye of a needle. And to get into that gate, they had to completely unload. Wrong scripture, I guess. (laughs) Um, To get into that gate, it was a nighttime gate. The big gates were closed. And for a camel to get in, they would have to unload everything and then kind of make it crawl in. Now, I've never seen a camel crawl. I have no clue, but that's what the commentaries say is a possibility, right? Put that together and say, for me to enter through the narrow gate, it may be that I'm going to have to unload some things. The things that I accumulate around me or the things that are a part of... I may have to get rid of some things for me to walk through this gate. And the idea of maybe kneeling is an interesting 
addition, so to speak. And, you know, if we're saying that there is a certain thing that has to be done to enter into the kingdom of God, and if we have this eternal perspective, I want to suggest to you that discipline and self-control can also be applied to these things because it says enter. That's a choice thing, right? Choose the narrow road. Again, a choice thing. And so if we're looking at it in that perspective, there's an awareness that I make decisions every day that are narrow gate decisions, where I unload some of the things that I've thought were precious to me, you know, the goods that I'm carrying along that I think are just almost, uh, you know, this is what my life is about. This is how I make money. And it's almost like, no, I'm going to set that aside. And maybe it means even kneeling before the maker just to, to move forward. So that's just a picture I, I pulled out of this. And obviously it's combining two things and call me a heretic if you want. I just like the picture. But we'll take that a step further now. Um, when the Hebrew writer says, um, he says, we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses in the 12th chapter, we must get rid of every weight and sin that clings so closely. You know, all, all the bundles. He says, those need to be gone. And run with endurance the race set out for us. And we noted last week that even with that idea of eternity, it's a long game. It's not the short and immediate. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, in other words, the potential. He, he's looking at what could be, and he says, this is the reason I'm doing this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says, the whole cross thing, the shame connected with it, that was all done so that the prize might be attained. It was worthwhile to him to walk through all of that. Then Jesus makes this statement while he's on earth to those around him, and he says, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, those are all choice things, aren't they? And so in that moment, it's like, do I have the discipline to go through the narrow gate? Do I have the self-control that says, I'm going to choose the cross. I'm going to choose this path. I'm going to choose to unencumber my life because this is what I've been called to do as a disciple of him. Take up his cross and follow him. In the 14th chapter of Luke, it says, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So again, there's that burden added, but it's in connection with following Christ. So that said, I want to go to a, a few things because in, in the Scripture, one of the things that I found when I looked up the term discipline, it's almost always done from this perspective of a parent disciplining a child or God disciplining his children it's not done in the sense of us having discipline. Almost always that term is connected with, at least in this translation, it's connected with um, the person who's receiving discipline from the Lord. But the idea is that the discipline that comes into our lives is for our benefit. And so it's valuable to take it on. 
And so you often see, like in the Proverbs, a linking of the terms reproof and discipline. You know, for the person that refuses discipline, there's bad days ahead. But also, it's better to accept reproof or receive a rebuke from someone and say, okay, thank you. That's, that's miserable, isn't it? Anytime somebody tells us, you're doing this improperly, there's something that bristles. There's something inside of us that goes, uh, you're a pain. Why don't you just, you know, stay out of my life? But the truth is, if we're willing to humble ourselves, regularly we can receive words of life from others if we're willing to humble ourselves enough to receive it. Now, pride comes in and says, I don't want anybody telling me anything, or this insecurity that says, if they're telling me this and I receive it, it acts like they're better than me. It's not it. Why not acknowledge truth for what it is and enjoy it? Why not take a step forward? So, lamentations. Let's read it in this light. Let a person sit alone in silence when the Lord is disciplining him. See that idea of, of coming from the Lord. Let him bury his face in dust. Perhaps there's hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who hits him. Let him have his fill of his insults or of insults. You kind of well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Why would they write this? Or why in this lamentation about Jerusalem would, would the writer write this? He goes. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Though he causes grief, he then has compassion on us according to the abundance of his loyal kindness. He says, this isn't a long-term thing. This is an immediate taking care of problems, so to speak. It says, for he is not predisposed to afflict or grieve people. It's not his general tendency to act mean to you. It is not his intent to just wake up and say, I'm crabby today and you're getting it. You know, <laughs> like some of us might do now and then, right? That's not his nature. His, his nature is a loyal kindness, it says. And so when we're looking at things, when even when it's the Lord's discipline, there's this awareness, might as well receive it, learn what I need to from it, because he's not predisposed you know, to, to act, to mistreating. But he's predisposed toward kindness. And so if I receive this as it's meant, there's an opportunity to come through it in greater strength. Pretty amazing idea. So Jesus himself when he's on this earth, in a sense, knows that the Father is not predisposed to just mistreatment. But he knows there's a joy out of this if he'll receive it. And so we see him living out the similar things. You know, when they crucified and divided his clothes, they, had, they struck him on the head, they spit on him. You know, he's... He's in some ways walking through this, this pain, even like of lamentations. They divide his clothes, throwing dice for them. He, he's taking on the sorrows of this earth and just saying, there is still something of value out of this. Now I want to go to Luke. 
this is where I've been heading all this time. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. This, this bothers me every time I read it. It's not a simple passage. And if we're honest, when we look at it, every time a name can come to mind that says, back off. Quit trying to get even. Quit trying to retaliate. Quit wishing ill. You know, it's, I, I read this, and it's like, this is taking things to a level that I'm not used to, and I don't necessarily myself even want. And yet there's a knowledge, this is what Jesus walked in, this is what he was willing to do, and this is what he's asking of us. This might be the narrow gate decision-making that he's calling us to as a measure of discipline or self-control. Not just, uh, did you lose a few pounds this week? You know, did you, did you eat right? Did you stay out of the sweets? Did you, you know, that's also temporal, Right? But if, if we're looking with an eternal perspective and we're asking God to change our thinking and we're taking on a discipline that walks through the difficult gate, so to speak, then it might be taking on a passage like this and say, loving enemies, okay, I don't get it. Doesn't seem in the natural right, but this is what you're asking of me. Blessing those who curse. Somebody's insulting me. Maybe I just speak something good over them. You know, we don't, we don't usually use that word curse, right? But insult is a part of our language. And, and we know what insults are. And maybe it's when we receive an insult that we just say, Lord bless you. Hope it goes well for you when you do this. And we just don't allow it to cling to us. Even in mistreatment, pray for those. I figure if I'm going to be, if this is going to be difficult for me, I might as well pass it on to you. <laughs> right? We can all enjoy it together. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. The person who takes your cloak or coat, do not withhold your tunic either. It just, I, Jesus being struck in the face, in the head, Jesus having his clothes divvied up, it, it just speaks to me that he'd already, he was going to walk through all of that. Give to everyone who asks of you and do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. In other words, when you, when you loan something to someone, you generally expect to get it back. But in some ways, you have to be willing to loan it as unto the Lord and say whether it comes back or not, my life is not dependent on this. It may require you praying in the first place, should I give out this loan, right? But if you have a peace, you have to give it with the eye that it may not come back to you.
many years ago. I think the first year Shar and I were married, we had loaned a person some money that we, we really didn't have that much extra, and, and we had loaned it out, and uh, it didn't come back. So they made contact with us about a year later. Being the man of God that I am, I sent Shar. I didn't want anything to do with him. Figured, I'm done. <laughs> and uh, they blessed us way more than what we'd given them in return. Now, I'm, I'm glad she went. And, I, you know, in hindsight, it would have been better had I participated. But, you know, it was like that was long gone, and my choice had been inappropriate because it stung. You know, in that moment, it, was, it, it hurt. But this is a narrow gate decision that at times it's just, let it go. Do you really want to carry that anger and that bitterness long term? Or do you want to just move on? What we're being offered in the Lord is an opportunity to release and to walk with a health that most people don't have. But you've got to come to a place where you're willing to say whether it ever comes back or not is not as important as being at peace with God. And in a sense, that's a disciplined, narrow gate decision. It's a choice. And we say, well, for you, Lord, this is where I'm going. If you, okay, Treat others in the same way that you would want to be treated. So that's what, in Matthew's account, was the same verse that preceded that narrow gate illustration that Jesus gave. So I think there, there, it's not inappropriate to tie these things together. I've never combined them before when I've been reading it, but I'm looking at it now and going, a lot of these things are just choices. And they're disciplined, self-controlled choices, so to speak. And they require me to step forward into the narrow path that not many take. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Everybody acts this way. We love those who love us. We're happy to do good to those who return good to us. If you lend to those from whom you hope to repay, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners that they might be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good to, and lend to them, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and evil people, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So he's calling us to a different path. And you're going to have to submit each of those decisions unto the Lord and say, how do you want me to respond to this? What would you ask of me in this moment? Sometimes you move on, sometimes you don't get involved, but there are definitely times when he just says, I want you to do this. I want you to release this. 
I want you to treat them with graciousness even though they don't deserve it. I want you to be merciful in this moment because I'm merciful. Those are narrow gate decisions. Listen to this out of Proverbs. The one who forgives an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. So he says, if you have a bigger goal in mind, sometimes you just don't spread the gossip, even if it's true. Sometimes the things that you've heard, if you have a a bigger picture in mind or something that's more long-range, you just shut the door on letting that thing go on. They don't need to know, so to speak. Because then they're going to have to deal with the anger that comes associated with such things. Here's another proverb. A person's wisdom has made him slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. What a powerful idea that conscious decisions say, not going to blow up in this moment, not going to react to this, and even to say, just going to set it aside. But, 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 what if they don't ever change? What if they don't know any better? And I need to tell them, (laughs) they know better, trust me. It's that intense thing where we make a narrow gate decision that says, for the Lord, in this moment, I believe he has given me what I need that I can walk on without processing this any further, carrying this offense anymore, this anger. Second Timothy says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So we're, we're all about power and love, you know. Love it when he works through us powerfully. Love it when there's just that feeling in the room of, oh, how wondrous this is. Self-control, well, that, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one too. But in the Lord, you know, it's this decision-making ability that says, I'm going to live differently. Listen to this out of Second Peter he, uh, he's talking about the magnificent promises of what's in store for us and that we get to partake in the divine nature and escape worldly corruption. And he says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly affection. To brotherly affection, unselfish love. He says, let these things develop that the fruit of love might come out of you. For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. I want to finish with a passage out of Second uh, Peter again in the third chapter. And this is when uh, Peter's talking about God's timetable being vastly different than ours. And he's going, you know, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And, and we're going, but that's longer than I'll be living. And yet he's still saying it, time is not that important to the Lord. In other words, it's something we work with and we're very aware of, but he has a much 
longer perspective on things. And that said, um, he just he says that there is going to be suddenly a change in things, though, when this world is over as we know it. And he says, it's going to go long, 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 and then suddenly done. And he says, everything is going to be revealed as it is. Everything laid bare, so to speak. And he says, since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for the hastening and coming day of the Lord. He says, we know what's in store. We know what's ahead. So we set our perspective on living as if that's going to happen at any time. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. We have this eternal hope. And so I want to suggest to you that it's very, very important that we exercise the discipline that the Lord would place in our lives. But that come out is more than just the temporal things. Let it come across as the truly spiritual nature of the love of God as he is exerted here on this earth. Let us become like him in that fashion. Let us make the choices of life that are narrow gate decisions. And let that be the mark of us as believers. Lord, we thank you for your scripture that speaks life to us. We thank you that you grant us the hope of eternity and of living with you forever and dwelling in a new heaven and a new earth, dwelling in a place that exemplifies righteousness and holiness that is truly different than this world. Now, while we're here, we ask that you'll help us to make the choices and decisions that point to narrow gate decisions, that are decisions that are appropriate with your nature, that are appropriate with those who would model themselves after you. Speak to each one of us how we may do that, we ask. Amen.